0: saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed for a while and stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was beginning no little business to the craftsmen, These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into dispute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarding, regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship, world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with the confusion and they rushed with, rushed with one according into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Articus. Paul's traveling companions for Macedonia, and when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then, some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander since the Jews had put him forward and having motioned with his hand Alexander was intending to make a defence to the assembly but when they recognized that he was a Jew a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours great is Artemis of the Ephesians after quieting the crowd the town clerk said men of Ephesus what man is there after all who does not know that the city of Ephesus is guardian to the temple of the great Artemis, and that the image which fell down from heaven. So since there are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with them have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another, but if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in lawful assembly, for indeed we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is no real cause for it, and in this connection we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Amen. Amen.
0: Yellow. Yellow, thank you. <laughs>
1: part of my body, in a way. (laughs) Good morning, everybody. Um, I mean, this was an incredible scene, guys. Like, here, Gaius and uh, Aristarchus are entrapped in this mob, right, of angry people shouting, Great is Artemis of Ephesus. And I'm sure that, you know, they're praying, like, God, you know, like, please protect us. Get us out of here. And they are. I mean, that moment where scripture says that the crowd was dismissed, I mean, can you imagine the relief, right, that Gaius and Aristarchus had? Hmm. You know, it, it, it. Reminds me of like um King David and you know King David was always like in some kind of, you know, like danger, life threatening situation. And in Psalm one hundred twenty four, verses two to eight, he says, When people attack us, they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger flared against us. The flood would have engulfed us and the turret would have swept over us. Raging waters would have swept us away. We escaped like a bird from a fowler's snare. The snare had been broken and we escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The Lord protected David. He preserved David's life. And to give us a glimpse of how David thought, his world view, what he lived out of. In Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. That's what David calls it, my shepherd. He saw himself as a sheep, a sheep who needs a shepherd to survive. See, sheep. Some of us know this. You know, they don't have good eyesight. They don't hear very well. Uh, they're slow, <laughs> you know, very slow. And so they can't escape predators who are running after them. They can't escape them on their own. And they don't have a camouflage. They have no weapons like claws and, um, you know, sharp hooves that they can kick them with, or powerful jaws that you know they can bite back. Sheep are basically, you know, helpless creatures. And this is how David felt. Like a helpless creature. They can't survive long without a shepherd. And they're totally dependent on their shepherd to protect them. Like David is totally dependent on his shepherd, the Lord, to protect him. There's this uh, story about a Sunday school teacher who decided to have her young class memorize Psalm 23, um, "The Lord is my shepherd," uh, and it's one of the most quoted passages in Scripture, the Bible. Um, she gave her kids like a month to learn this, right? And there's this little guy named Ricky, and um, he's really excited about doing this, but he just he just had a hard time memorizing things, you know, and so. It was really hard for him. And the day came. I mean, he practiced and practiced and stuff. The day came for him to get up in front of the congregation and share. The Lord is my shepherd. So he gets up, takes a deep breath. (laughs) He's really nervous. Um, And he says, the Lord is my shepherd. That's all I need to know. <laughs> <laughs> Clever kid. <right? laughs> um, you know, if you're a Christian, and most of us here are, the Lord is our shepherd too. Right? Now my question is, can you trust him? And most of you go, yeah, I can trust him. Can you trust him when you're in danger? That's another story. Now, going back to our scripture passage today, we see that Gaius, Aristarchus, and Paul face danger. Now, to set the scene, imagine we're in Ephesus. Ephesus is a province in Asia, and it's the most significant and important um, city in Western Asia Minor at the time. It's where Turkey is now. But this center is a commercial center, right? So there's a lot of business, almost like New York or something, right? Um, and it had a harbor, so ships and you know boats and commerce could come in and out of the city. And it also was the intersection of major like routes. Um, and this is the, this is the big thing though about Ephesus. Um, its pride and joy was this temple that was dedicated to the goddess of Artemis. And there are a couple of Artemis's goddesses, but this particular one, the Ephesian go- uh, Artemis, was a goddess of fertility. Now, this temple, I mean, this thing was amazing, you know. It's probably, you know, I don't know how big the Metropolitan Museum of Art is, but you know how sprawling and big and... Magnificent is this? You can imagine that's what this was like. I mean, this temple was like 425 feet high, 220 feet wide, and it had like 127 white marble columns that were 62 feet high, less than four feet apart. Spectacular. Hmm. And housed in this temple, in the inner sanctuary, was this image of Artemis that supposedly dropped from heaven. Today, some scientists think it was a meteor. But back then, the people of Ephesus thought it was a god. Um, You know, this temple was a a, a big deal. Um, It just drew drew tourists and pilgrims from all over the world and Asia. So you can imagine the business that it drummed up. Um, and it's from this place that Ephesus sends his co-laborers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, and Paul decides to stay a while here in Ephesus, and he makes it his center of evangelism, and because of that, and the work of the Holy Spirit through him, the church is flourishing at this time. But the church's flourishing is disturbing. This silver craftsman named Diemich, Di, Demetrius? <laughs> no, Dia. I'm almost like making it like Dia, like a, a female god or something, but Demetrius, right? Um, so imagine, I imagine Demetrius is this like, you know, uh, strong, muscular, armed guy from hammering silver. Um, could see like burn scars, you know, on his hands from melting the metal. And he's waving his hands, um, trying to gather you know, all these craftsmen together and workmen of other trades. And he's like, fellow craftsmen. He says, you may be wondering why I've gathered you here today. I'm concerned. The way Christianity its followers—they concern me. They're causing great disturbances that affect all of us. Now, like you, I take—I take my, you know—I take my work and I do it with pride. I mean, I make silver shrines of Artemis, and I bring all of you craftsmen tons of business. Men, you know, you know this. You know that our prosperity depends upon this business. And you know, we make a whole lot of money from this, right? Selling these silver shrines to tourists and (laughs) pilgrims that come to our city. What happens, what will happen if our business shuts down? I mean, how are we going to take care of families, and sustain this this lavish lifestyle that we well deserve. These Christians of the way they're causing us to lose money. They're dangerous. You see and you hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, has persuaded and turned away considerable numbers of people buying our shrines. He tells our buyers that the gods that are made with hands are no gods at all. He even said this. He said, therefore, since we are descendants of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by human skill and For God said, do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make yourselves gods of gold or gods of silver. I mean, he's talking about our livelihood. I mean, you know, who does he think he is? A god himself? And who gives him the power to speak these dangerous words against us? He's ruining our businessmen, and this this Paul, in this way, they're just dangerous, and they must be stopped. Do you agree? And not only that, he's a danger to, to the temple of our great goddess Artemis, and to our goddess herself, I mean, you know, this is gonna dethrone her magnificence, and we can't have that. We can't have that. When men heard this, they were filled with rage and they began crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You know, Demetrius reminds me of Proverbs twenty eight twenty five. The greedy, stir-up conflict. Mm. Willie James Jennings comments on this. Demetrius is shrewd. He makes the connection for his listeners between their economic well-being and the prevailing religious ideology. Mm. This gospel threatens our trade and our temple. Demetrius has evoked a powerful mix of Winning strategy for fostering hatred and mindless violence. Jennings says, if you want people to hate deeply, hate deep to the bones, Suggest huh. suggests that someone or something threatens their financial stability and their theological beliefs. We see that today. In our own culture, and I won't mention one that we all know about. <laughs> Ephesus is now in an uproar, filled with confusion and mob forms. They look for Paul. Where's Paul? Can't find Paul. But they find his companions from Macedonia Gaius and Arist- Aristarchus them into the theater shats the enraged mob. The theater is an assembly place where they had regular town meetings and the capacities were more than 20,000 people, which was plenty enough for the mob and all those that joined them along the way. Angry rioters firmly grabbed hold of Gaius and Aristarchus. They dragged them along the streets to the theater and rush into it with one accord. Paul, wherever he is, he wants to join his companions, but the disciples won't let him. It's too dangerous. Paul is the focus of the mob, and his life is in mortal danger. Even Paul's friends, the elected officials called Asiarchs, they urged him over and over again, Paul, don't venture into the theater. Now, meanwhile, at the theater, there's pandemonium, confusion escalating, and some are shouting one thing and some another. The majority don't even know the reason why they came together in the first place. And then Alexander, a Jewish person, uh, pushed forward by Jewish people, he's motioning with his hands to silence the mob. He wants to make a defense to the assembly, maybe to explain that the Jews have no part of the way. The Jews were not involved in this economic, civic, religious dispute. But the inflamed assembly recognized him to be a Jewish person, just like Christians who oppose any foreign gods as idols. The irate, anti-Christian, anti-Jewish mob stopped him from speaking. And they shout for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. (sighs) Aristarchus and Gaius face mortal danger. Jennings makes the point, if you want people to be willing to kill without hesitation, suggest that these same enemies will weaken the social and political standing of a place in people by their actions. Ephesus will diminish in glory if we don't stop the way. Our businesses will diminish in productivity and sales if we don't stop the way. Now once this logic is unleashed on a people, Jennings asserts no people has the power to resist the powerful impulse because it conjures up this spirit of fear and failure and it reminds people of their vulnerability as creatures in this world. So often we think we're in control, especially people who have wealth and power. The Ephesians' fear and failure and ruin unleash this powerful uh, impulse to destroy their perceived enemy, the Christians. Aristarchus and Gaius, are entrapped in a theater of unleashed rage. Where is God in all this? We can imagine Aristarchus and Gaius praying like David when his life was threatened. See how many enemies I have and how viciously they hate me. Protect me, oh God. Rescue my life from them. Don't let me be disgraced, for in you I take refuge. King David cried out to God, and God answered his prayers. When King David faced danger, God protected him. Like David, God protected Paul, Gaius, and Aristarchus too. And we may think that God is remote in this situation. He's not mentioned in the text at all. Subject to any action. But he does not. And this doesn't mean that he's not present and working behind the scenes. Example, Esther. Stories of Esther and Ruth, right? God's not mentioned. But based on Christian doctrine, the doctrine of providence, God was present. And Shirley Guthrie, the author of... Uh, Christian doctrine states, the doctrine of providence is an extension of the doctrine of creation. It says that the loving, just, and powerful God who first made heaven and earth continues to uphold, protect, rule, take care of, provide for God's good creation in each of us. In other words, after creation, God didn't stop working or his relationship with us. The doctrine of providence is saying that God is still at work. God is here. Millard Erickson, author of Introducing Christian Doctrine, further explains providence. God's providence is central, he says. It means that we. Are able to live in the assurance. Blessed assurance. God is present, active in all our lives. He's here with us right now. And we take a moment and just think about that for a minute. Did you say hi to God today? Hi, God. Love you, God. We are in his care, and therefore we can face the future you know, with confidence, knowing that things don't happen by accident or by chance. We can pray, and we can know that he's going to answer our prayers. And we heard some testimonies of that. We hear it every week. We experience it in our lives. We know that. <clears throat> but for some reason, we know these things, many of us. But when we face danger, something happens. Mm -hmm. It's almost like something short circuits, right? Like everything we know, we kind of, it's like a temporary amnesia or something. And we can experience like extreme fear. So, based on providence, we can say that in this passage that we're reading, even though God's name isn't mentioned, is aware of this angry mob and what Gaia and Aristarchus have gone through. And not only is he aware, he's involved. He's involved behind the scenes. He protected Paul from the angry mob. He caused his disciples to not allow him to go to the theater. And he even, got even <clears throat> used unbelievers. You know, Paul's, he's um, our friends, right? to urge him, Paul, we urge him, don't go to the theater. (sighs) So, Paul was protected by God and Paul was saved. But what about Gaius and Aristarchus, who are like present, like right there, like live, you know, before this angry mob? Imagine, they're trapped in this theater. It's almost like being held hostage or something, right? Not by a group of nice people or people celebrating, like listening to a concert and like, hey, hey, you know? uh uh-uh. <laughs> Great is Artemis On the Ephesians. I can see them snarling and growling. enter the town clerk." Is the town clerk an angel or something? <laughs> <laughs> you know what, After quieting the, clock, the the mob, the town clerk affirmed, men of Ephesus, who does not know that this city of Ephesians um, is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and her image, which fell down from heaven? Even our coins are money. <laughs> display proudly the slogan, Temple Warden. We're hot stuff. (laughs) And since these are undeniable facts, This town clerk, I mean, just by his presence, probably had some authority. So he really didn't have to say anything. He probably would, although mob mentality can even sometimes that you know they lose their mind and they will come again up against anything. Um, <coughs> but uh, you know, he's saying you know these are undeniable facts. So don't do anything rash. And then he he may have asked them. He says, you know, okay. Why have you brought these men here? I mean, you know, have they um, Have they stolen anything from our temples? No. Have they said anything irreverent? like are, do they speak irreverently about Artemis? No. Friends. They are not blasphemers of our goddess, nor robbers of temples." No case. Now, you, uh, Demetrius, you know, OK. And, and, and all you craftsmen and tradesmen with him. Look, <clears throat> if you have other complaints besides what I just shared, um, you know, against these men concerning your business, your money, Your wealth, your pocketbook, take them to court. Courts are open in session, proconsuls are available. Bring your charges against these men there, not here. And if you want anything else beyond this, you know, it's got to be settled in a sanctioned, legal assembly, not a disorderly, illegal assembly like this. Now, we're in danger, you know, I'm being very serious with you men here, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events. We have no real legal grounds for this complaint. There's no legal ju- justification for this riot. So we're not going to be able to account you know, for this disorderly gathering. So for your own safety, I advise you go home. After saying this, the town clerk dismissed the assembly. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Imagine the relief again, right, of Gaius and Aristarchus and um, Paul. You know, God protected them like he did David. God was not only aware of the danger that they faced, but he was involved in protecting them. Christians belong to God. are under his care. Psalm 103, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his, we are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. As his sheep like David, Paul, Gaius, and Aristarchus, Christians are under his providential care. God is a good shepherd. He's always aware active in our lives and for our good. And whether we're aware of him or not, he's always, always working behind the scenes. God worked through the town clerk to protect his disciples. God is sovereign in the circumstances of the lives of individual persons, Erickson asserts. And David found comfort in the fact that God was sovereign in his life in Psalm 31. He says, but I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God, and my times are in your hands. God is sovereign even in what we think of accidental occurrences of life. Psalm 1633, the lot is cast into the lot, but it's every decision is the law. God protected Paul, David. The disciples, can you trust him to protect you? You know, it's easy to believe that God protects us, you know, when things are going well in our lives and in the world. But it's not so easy to believe when we see tragic suffering in the world and we experience it in our own lives. At those times, can we trust? Uh, to protect us. You know, we may not have enemies threatening to kill us like David, uh, or an angry mob, you know, holding us hostage in a theater like Aristarchus and um, Gaia. But um, we face other dangers today. You know, like headlines read right? global COVID 19 deaths hit 5 million as Delta virus. Sweep the world. Man attacked after preaching on a New York subway. Four attacks within three hours, amidst a surge in subway violence. One subway rider said, "We need more police in the train stations, on the trains. People don't feel safe. Many of us don't feel safe, and God is aware of it." And he's at work behind the scenes. But if God is aware and at work, why doesn't he stop the
0: suffering
1: and the danger that causes it? The short answer is, sometimes he does, and sometimes he doesn't. long yet sir, is a larger conversation of the doctrine of providence and the problem of evil conversation worth having but you know we're going to have to have it another time what time is it now <laughs> we could be here all day we have to order out for lunch Jean, so. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know what is relevant to our message is guthrie's poignant remark on providence and faith she says, I quote, so long as we try to figure out for ourselves whether, you know, how God is at work among us, our faith will always be uncertain and confused. But the Christian doctrine of providence is not based on what we can figure out for ourselves on our own experience um, or observation of the world, balancing evidence for and against faith in God. It is a Christian doctrine based on what scripture tells us about the presence and work of God. It's the story of ancient Israel in scripture and scripture and above all, Jesus Christ. And it's in these stories, right, they're more than a proof about God. They are a confession of faith. Charles Spurgeon from his work on uh, the treasury of David notes. He's speaking about, you know, his Psalms where he's uh, talking about God and how he trusts him and how he's protected him and brought him through all these dangers. Spurgeon says it's David's declaration and confession of faith coupled with his testimony from his experience. Of trusting God, and each experience caused him to trust God more. David said, You know, he he depended on the Lord like a sheep does a shepherd, and he experienced God's protection because of that. David says, My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. David's heart trusted his shepherd, and God protected him. Heart trust, that's what I call it, heart trust. It never disappoints because God's love and protection never fails. You know, we may not understand how God is loving and protecting us at the time, right? Like, sometimes things happen, and we're like, like God, I, you know, this doesn't feel loving. it doesn't feel protecting. And it's only, like, usually, unless we get some revelation like that, like, Shakes us out of you know, forgetting who God is and that He loves us. Um, it's usually in retrospect, right? That we can see that what was so painful and so difficult at the time really did work out for our good. Um, now, Erickson clarifies a very important point for us about this protection and provision of God. He says, one salient dimension of God's preserving us and supplying us with what we need is that the believer is not spared, not spared from danger or trial, but preserved in it, preserved within it. There's no promise of no persecution and suffering. And we know that. We know it from our own lives, and we know it through studying Acts, like, every week, right? Like, there's something. No promise that persecution and suffering will not come. But the promise is this. And hold on to this. This is something that I'm holding on to in my heart. And I know God wants, and I want for all of us here, is to hold on to the promise. That these persecutions and these sufferings, they will not. And I'm saying that they will not prevail over us. They will not. God allowed Aristarchus and Gaius to be dragged, I mean to be dragged against their will into this theater by an angry mob. But he didn't allow. The angry mob to prevail over them. When they face danger, God protected them. And we can trust God to protect us when we face danger. And I'm speaking from experience. You know, I found out that I could trust God to protect me when I faced danger back in 2008. Up until that time, I had faith. For certain things, you know, like things like um, financial, food, clothing, provision, um, but not faith in the face of danger. Weekly, I was commuting to Massachusetts to teach public speaking at Gordon College. And each week when I returned uh, from Massachusetts to New York, something in my apartment was damaged. One week it was a slashed handbag. And like, not just, it was like a knife, you know, like slashed through the, ha- you know, the handbag. Another um, time, scratched floors, like somebody took a nail or something and just scratched in the wood. Um, another time, uh, broken furniture, torn clothes, holes put in my clothes, an old cell phone was like busted open um, and much more. And there was no forced entry, but someone entered my apartment illegally. Didn't steal anything, but violently vandalized my possessions. I felt violated, fearful, and unsafe. Someone had access to my apartment. What if they come into my apartment when I'm sleeping at night? I felt abandoned by God. Unloved, you know, and vulnerable. How could he allow this to happen to me? I always thought he would protect me, you know. But in this instant, it appeared like he didn't. And I felt alone and terrified. I don't know if any of you have ever felt anything like that. It may be for different reasons. Um, We all have different experiences. We never know what any of us have experienced in our life. It's another reason why we need to be very gentle and kind with one another. Um, But I remember clearly the day when I finally had the courage to try to do something about it. And um, fearful and ang- anxious, I, uh, I remember going to the police station, uh, police precinct, and report my incidences. And I go into the station, um, and there was a policeman sitting, like a receptionist, you know, at the front desk, and he. Um, Asked me, you know, how I, he could help me, and I shared with him. And he responds, "Do you know the Good Shepherd?" What? <laughs> First of all, I gotta tell you, like, I was really nervous going to the police station, especially like with, you know, what I was hearing in the news about how some bad cops there's good cops and bad cops right can treat people of color you know and and i was nervous but to go in you know to go in and (laughs) what says to me do you know the good shepherd stunned you know i um i said you know yes i do And then, smiling, he just very calmly said, Psalm 23. And he starts reciting, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not walk. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. And as he continues, my feelings of um, anxiety and fear start to melt away listen intently to him um, speaking God's words over me and I I really feel God's presence and providential care comforting me this is just a test the officer says a test you're gonna be okay I sense his praying for me then he asked you know do you know anyone who wants to like hurt you I get back at your boyfriend, you, a know, boyfriend, or something like that. And I said, no. And after further questioning, uh, he said, you know, if it should happen again, call us, and we can come and get fingerprints. And with a reassuring smile, he said, "You remember the good shepherd. He's with you. So I leave the police station. I literally feel God's presence with me. And I'm just so amazed that God met me. In that way, he is aware and involved. He is a good shepherd. Later, I realized that I have let these crimes of vandalism and threat of further um, violation distract me from my good shepherd and intimidate me. But my good shepherd knew, you know, he needed, he knew I needed a reminding of him. And so he uses this police officer of all people, right? to remind me of his presence with me and his work. Always working. He protected my heart. He replaced that fear in my heart with faith. Faith in the face of danger. He didn't protect my possessions, you know, but he protected me. And he shielded my heart. And like David now, it's like my heart trusts God war in the face of danger. And because the Lord is our shepherd, he gives us everything we need, including the faith that trust him. The Lord is our shepherd. He protects us from sometimes from danger, right, and sometimes, sometimes. in danger. Can we say that? God protects us sometimes from yeah. danger mm-hmm. and sometimes mm-hmm. in yeah. danger. If we can like remember that and carry us through like all this stuff that's going on around us in the world, we can be like David. We won't be controlled by fear and panic. You know, a little anxiety and I need that's normal. But the Lord is our shepherd, and He protects us. And he does it because he's loving, he's powerful. He made heaven and earth. And he didn't just make it and leave it. He continues. He continues to uphold. He continues to protect. He doesn't stop protecting. He continues to rule over. He's sovereign. He takes care of everything, right? He provides for us at his creation. It may not be like what we think, right? But Father Knows Best. There's this old TV show. I don't know (laughs) in this generation, but there was a show called Father Knows Best, and I always think about that. Father does know best. God protects us in the face of danger because that's what a good shepherd does, right? You know, he laid down his life for us. The Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And through his willing sacrifice, the Lord made salvation possible for anybody to come to him in faith. In proclaiming that he's the good shepherd, Jesus speaks of laying down his life for this year. Nobody's going to lay down their life for somebody that they don't love so deeply. And because he did and does love us, we can trust him. That's how we can trust him, because he wants us to And whenever we face danger, he's there, he's working. Now Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep, and they know me. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. As we close, listen to the words of our loving shepherd to us and if you'd like you can close your eyes I am your shepherd you shall not want I make you to lie down in green pastures I lead you beside still waters I restore your soul I lead you in right paths for my name's sake. Even though you walk through the darkest valley, face the darkest danger, you will fear no evil for I am with you. My rod and my staff, they will comfort you and protect you in the face of danger. I prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. I anoint your head with oil, your cup overflows. Surely, goodness, my protection, and my love will follow you all the days of your life. And you will dwell in my house forever. I love you. I will protect you. Trust. word of our good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. We thank you, our good shepherd, for all you do for us, all you provide. You comfort us. You heal us. Restore us. You feed us. You protect us. And if that were not enough, you died. You died for us that we would be forgiven and reconciled to our Father God and live an eternal life with you in your house forever. Thank you. In your loving name, we